I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, where we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And we are here today to do something we haven't done before. Uh, most of the time, I'm writing articles, and then I'm sitting with some of my colleagues, and we are talking about these articles. The tough thing about that is sometimes that puts boundaries on the conversation, and there's some topics that really don't make for a thousand-word conversation. But what I do know is I spend most of my lunch times here at the Bonson Group uh, spending them with colleagues and riffing on different financial topics that I think our listeners would be interested in. So I invited on in today none other than Mr. Dea Pernas. Hello, everybody. And I'm going to just throw some curveballs your way, and we're just going to riff back and forth. And uh, I think these are topics that are great for podcast discussion, but I don't think that they merit a whole article. So you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Kind of no script, uh, shoot from the hip type conversation. Uh, I'm ready. I hope you're ready. So here's the first one. Um, uh, I think a client asked a really good question recently, and they were looking at some of the investments, and they wanted to understand like management or investment fees. And they came from a former investing paradigm that basically said, if you look at a universe of investments, the first way you should itemize those investments is by their fee structure, um, and then you should make your decision from there. So I have some opinions, but I want to pose it to you first. How important are fees when it comes to investment management? So, and uh, the fees that you're talking about, you're talking about uh, fees within maybe certain funds or advisory fees? Uh, We're going to stay away from I- advisory fees because okay. I think okay. those are usually understood. I think they're modest. I think they're pretty consistent across the industry. But you get some dispersion, um, whether it's you're looking at a mutual fund or you're looking at a hedge fund or you're looking at private equity. There's there's different structures. And some people have grown up in an investment world where th- – they have an attitude and opinion that fees matter, which I, do, I think they do. So yeah. I'm going to get into my side. Sure. But yeah. I, I wanted to get uh, your opinion as an uh, kind of coming to the background of an analyst. How important are fees? Sure. So uh, just for list, just uh, to, uh, to kind of give uh, a broad perspective for listeners. So ev- every single ETF that uh, somebody might invest in or mutual fund or closed end fund will have uh, internal expenses. Uh, you know, they, they're called expense ratios. And uh, so these expense ratios can there can be a, a wide uh, variance in some of these expense ratios. You can have uh, at some some of the Vanguard or uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the name, but but some of the very very large ETF uh, the expense ratios can be a couple bips, and some of the mutual funds can have uh, uh, expense ratios within a couple percent. So, uh, how do you decide whether you're paying too much uh, when you're when you're buying a fund? And I wish the analysis was as simple as okay, let's just rank all of them by you know which whichever one's the highest, and let's exclude all those and just only look at the the, the lowest ones. But in reality, what you'll find is um, maybe maybe that's a good way to do, it, or maybe the the ones with the lowest cost aren't necessarily uh, the best type of product and the best type of fund. So uh, I unfortunately uh, the the answer is always it depends, and uh, a, a deeper analysis is needed, and. Uh, Really, uh, really, you have to understand what the fund is trying to do, and you have to understand if the fund's active or passive. If it's passive, uh, that means that it's essentially a systematic trading strategy that doesn't involve the human element, and those will almost always be lower cost uh, than the alternative, where you actually have people that uh, that are uh, there's an investment committee, they're doing they're doing research, 
and they're uh, then they're using the human element to make judgments about what to buy and sell, and that typically comes with a higher cost. And uh, a lot of times, that higher cost may be warranted, and it may not be. And you have to, uh, it's a case-by-case basis, and you have to do an analysis at the fund level. So I, I think it's a, it's a complex discussion. I think fees definitely matter, uh, but within a certain, uh, certain context, uh, you could be paying a, a good amount for the right type of value, and, and it's worth it. So, so uh, it, it requires a good amount of homework to, to know if the, if the fee is reasonable or not. I'm going to go over some of my pet peeves. I don't like when people say you get what you pay for. Because I feel like that's sometimes an out um, because there's sometimes where you could overpay. Um, I don't like when people say fees are the only thing that matters. I don't like it when people say that fees don't matter at all. So I'm going to push it back on you and say, hey, Dea, you're the analyst. I'm going to give you five data points of this fund. Is fees one of the five things that you'd want to know if I'm only going to give you five data points? Fees are one of the things I would want to know if uh, you're only going to give me five data points. It'd be hard to know exactly what other data points to come up with. Um, and almost all, almost all the time, uh, you know, we obviously make our decisions, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole qualitative element to making decisions well, besides looking at uh, business data management points. team, things like Abs- that. Absolutely. Uh, understanding uh, conversations with managers and trying to tie the, ma- the track record back to uh, the type of uh, the edge or whatever strategy the manager has and, and making sure that if they're outperforming, it's not just luck and so on. But uh, I think that fees are definitely part of it for the reason that uh, if you're an investor, you're almost always long-term oriented and fees uh, fees can eat away at, uh, at you know, t- the terminal value of your portfolio. Uh, and even if it's a, even if it's a small amount, if you compound that over, over time, it can have a disproportionate effect in the future. So it's something to definitely be mindful of, in my opinion. Yeah, you're in your high school econ class and you're getting your first dose of compounding interest and you're seeing kind of this parabolic uh, sweep on what uh, a portfolio could look like. That same argument can be made for costs that they compound over time. Uh, so let's go back to this idea of, since we're shooting from the hip, of these five metrics that you would choose. But just to throw back you, yeah. would fees be one for you? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think um, I love it when I get into these conversations with folks because I'm a big fan of John Bogle. Um, uh, that was the founder of uh, basically the founder of the index fund, right? Or, or kind of brought it to market. I, in my world, he his face would be on the, the Mount Rushmore of finance. Uh, I've I've read multiple of his books, but I think sometimes people um, don't get his argument right. Sometimes they use him as a, a person to argue active versus passive. But I, I think what he was really advocating is high cost versus low cost. And I think when you get into the area of fees, you get into this idea of value, right? What are you getting for that cost? So when I think of the other five metrics, and I can name the five metrics because I'm not an analyst, so um, I have some uh, freedom here uh, that can be pretty liberal with my opinions about it. But I would say, and I don't have five in mind, I'm just going to kind of go from the top ahead, fees would be one of them. I'd want to know how different the manager looks than the index. Um, in, in our world, we call that active share, right? Um, are they doing something different than just kind of owning the index? Some people call that a benchmark hugging or something like that. There's this idea that uh, the managers of these firms have career risk 
that if they look too different, um, that they might be putting their jobs on the line. But I do want them to use their expertise and their intellect to bring something to me that's unique. So uh, going back to my top five, I would look at fees. I would look at how unique they are compared to um, what they're benchmarking themselves against. I'd want to know how much skin they have in the game. Like, is their own money in the fund? Like, for me, that's a huge metric. Uh, I want to know that you, uh, the leader of this, the believer in this, have your money right next to mine. Um, Beyond that, what would be some other things that would be important to me? I think turnover would be important. Not saying that a high turnover fund would be horrible, but I want to understand, is this person using some sort of uh, strategy where they're using their intellect of how markets work or are they really business owner oriented, right? You guys meet with a manager in New York that some of the companies in his portfolio he's owned for two decades. Uh, To me, I like that. Um, So I think that would be an important metric. Now, number five, I'll have you start naming some because I don't know if I can think of a number five, but those top four, at least for me, would be pretty satiating. I, I I like everything you said, and I agree with everything you said. You uh, aligning incentives, uh, you know, obviously have cost in there. Um, wh- I, what I might add, just as far as metric goes, maybe upside downside capture. Uh, I like some of the illustrations that show you how the fund has changed over time, uh, the style of the fund over like time. Like the drift or the creep right. away from it, kind of the initial... Uh, exactly. The, yeah. That the paint maybe more of a story instead of a, a current snapshot of what things look like now. Uh, well, like you said, holding p- period I, I is something I like to look at. Obviously, us being long-term investors, I like to look at how, how large the fund is now compared to... When uh, the fund did have its its successes, there's my number five. You just nailed yeah, that. I didn't right, think of that yeah. one. Yeah, just this idea that size can be the enemy of performance. Um, I think that would be an important one to know. Totally, but I, I love everything you said. You you want you want my job? You want to switch? Yeah, no, no, I don't want to switch. But that gives our listeners a little bit of insight that um, that is that is one of the ideas of hiring professionals, right? That there isn't always just an easy fix to kind of organize a list of investments by one metric and make a decision. Because even what we just articulated right now, maybe we talked about some things that you aren't familiar with, right? This idea of uh, turnover, active share, and that's okay. But the idea is that even when we get down to this to kind of solidify a universe of what we're interested in, we go shake hands, we go meet with the people, we have conversations, and we see the character of the people that we're going to invest next to. That is a full-time job. And um, that is one of the reasons that people come to us to um, be stewards of their capital. And it's not something that you can easily do with a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning before you take the kids to a soccer game. Perfect. And, uh, and I think that it's important to, to realize we're talking about active managers, obviously. And, and there are places for passive strategies in the portfolio. Of course. And there's certain asset classes that lend themselves to uh, those passive strategies. But the, this due diligence that we're talking about is uh, mainly, you know, almost always done at this depth at the uh, active, active management level. Yeah. And if you're going into the passive world, fees matter a whole lot more because that math is simple. But fees aren't the only factor, right? When you get to some level, when something is a tenth of a percent uh, or, you know, uh, what we would call in the industry, two basis points lower, you then have to look at some things like execution, right? And the volume and and, and what that actually means if you're going to be trading this across uh, a, a book of clients. So um, even in the passive world, uh, fees isn't a standalone metric. There's some other pieces that you have to look at. Totally. 
Now, as you can understand, I wasn't going to write a thousand words on investment fees, so uh, I think we've said enough there. I'm going to tee this off for but, you. And, but but I assume that's a question you get a lot, though. Uh, you have you have clients that are hyper-focused on expense ratios, and you have to uh, put it in the right context. And uh, it's it seems uh, obviously, I think everything you said is very compelling. Is that something that they that resonates in, in them, or something they pick up quickly, or? Yeah, I think there's two ways to present it. A lot of times I'll give, I'll ask, do you want the short answer or the long answer? I think the short answer is that we do a lot of vetting and due diligence to make sure whatever cost we are incurring, we believe we're getting absolute value for that, meaning that we're getting more from the manager um, in, in, in returns and risk management and all of that than we would be paying in cost. That's the short answer. The long answer is looking into a little bit of what that diligence looks like mm. And then how long we've had that relationship. Because sometimes we can look back at an, uh, uh, an investment team we've been working with for a decade, and we can look at their batting average and say, hey, these are the benefits that our clients have gleaned. So I understand your question as a new client, but um, you can understand uh, kind of what our reasoning is and how this has benefited our clients uh, over time. And hopefully, uh, that's uh, that's there. Uh, you convert them into order into thinking about costs in a different type of mindset, uh, other than just that narrow type of framing. Yeah, and I understand it though because like there's a whole generation of investors that have grown up um, as like Morningstar type of investors, um, where you know most of us have 401k plans and they present some sort of two pager that gives you these small descriptors so that you understand the difference between these funds and how you should go about picking things and star ratings and expense ratios. You're having to make choices with a limited amount of data. So I think they're good conversations. And the last thing I'll add on to that, uh, a lot of our clients are clients are people that seek us out. And why do they seek us out? Because they read our content. And why do they read their our content? Because they're intellectually curious. So I like those questions because it aligns with how they got to that first introduction with us. I, I agree. I, I haven't heard you say that there's a question you don't like. <laughs> but I, I mean, obviously, those, those questions, uh, I think, are extremely important. And I think they're very warranted given how the industry's done a terrible job, uh, you know, marketing certain products that are pretty much passive as active management overcharging people. So I, I think people are correct to, to, for fees to be front of mind, especially uh, how much of a terrible job the industry's done. And uh, obviously, ETFs, as you mentioned, one of the great innovations uh, of our industry has, has really helped uh, normalize fees, uh, you know, for for the average person, and push toward transparency totally, uh, as totally. well. Uh, and I think that I have a list in front of me of like topics I think are interesting, but I'm going to skip over one because I like what you just said. You you made a, a kind of a joke that there's never been a question that I don't like because I do like it when clients are inquisitive. But I will draw the line. I like questions when they're seeking an answer. I don't like questions when they're accusatory or mm. kind of cornering the advisor, um, at least for me, that maybe I wasn't doing something in their best interest, which brings me to the next subject of fiduciary. But Oh, great. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. And uh, I imagine that typically happens, and, and that's happened to me too, but I imagine that typically happens in a discovery meeting, maybe when they don't uh, know you as well, and uh, some of their questions are coming from a place of total distrust. Uh, that has really stemmed from something they read about our industry or churning or commissions or, you know, some brokerage related stuff. 
it, uh, it, does it happen in the very, I assume in the very early stages of the relationship? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it all depends, right? You have all different types of personalities. And, um, you know, there's the song, So You Had a Bad Day. Uh, sometimes people just come mm. and um, they are taking out on you what they've experienced elsewhere. But that is where I personally draw the line is that I love to kind of peel back the curtain and, and look at all the, the nuance and intricacy and the granularity of things. Um, but when it becomes kind of a, a, an accusatory process mm. or something like that, uh, it's hard for me being an emotional person uh, to kind of not let my little offense wall come up. I, I um, understand. It's, yeah, it's difficult uh, you know, to always be, uh, you know, professional, uh, you know, especially if, if somebody's coming at you unjustifiably so. Yeah. And that's why I think fiduciary becomes a good conversation I would have never guessed this before I got in the industry that there was this line that separated two different type of people that were going to give you financial advice. Um, and one is a fiduciary and one is not a fiduciary. Um, and nor before I came to industry, would I have known what that word even means? Um, a lot of time people ask, we say we have a legal responsibility to act in your best interest. And people are like, wait, there's a, a group of people that don't have a legal responsibility to act in my best interest. So, um, maybe between friends or clients or whatever, kind of how have you, tried to um, express what it means to be a fiduciary and, and what do you think that impact on our industry if there's that line on the sand of two teams, non-fiduciary and fiduciary, are more people joining the fiduciary team um, and, and what does the future of our industry look like? That's I think that's a great question and it's a difficult thing to just define on its own and expect people to just understand because it's uh, it's kind of like if you're defining heaven, you have to talk about hell. You have to talk about you have to contrast it with other business models, and and now you're having a conversation about the whole industry. Uh, and you know, uh, essentially, you know, Trevor gave you the definition. We have a legal responsibility to act in clients' best interest. Uh, are they are there places that don't have that legal responsibility? Of course, they operate under different standards, uh, under the suitability standards, which essentially says that. As long as this whatever product uh, you put in this client's portfolio is okay, then uh, then it's suitable. Is suitable, then it's fine. When uh, when obviously we're held to a much higher standard. And I think I'll pause that, you real quick. Sure, so just so sure. clients understand, what Day is saying there is that if if you're not placing yourself out there as a fiduciary, and uh, a client comes to you with a particular financial objective, and you have two solutions, uh, products, whatever you want to call it, that can basically satisfy that objective, maybe one you get paid more than the other commissions or whatnot. You can choose either product um, in that environment, in the non-fiduciary environment. You're you're only held to the standard was what you recommended suitable to the objective um it's agnostic to um any conflicts of interest you might have on your end absolutely so let's say uh i'm selling you a fund you're looking uh uh, and and this is the non-fiduciary model the, the suitability model let's say i work at a bank and you're looking for a type of growth fund and if i place you in this growth fund uh, I get, let's say I get a dollar in commissions, but there's another growth fund I could place you in and I get $10. Uh, the, my incentives are going to lean towards placing you in the, in the higher cost fund, uh, even though maybe it's not the best thing for you. Uh, so, so as far, so I think w- the fiduciary model, obviously it's something that, uh, has gained a lot of traction in the recent years. I think it was catalyzed really in 2008, 2009, when uh, when the vulnerabilities of the of the other types of models 
uh, really started to become apparent. And uh, a lot of people and a lot of banks were getting sued and a lot of institutions were, uh, you know, legal action was ensuing against institutions for their failure to serve clients. And uh, then advisors started to become more fiduciary. And the more fiduciary you you become, the less you need to be connected to a big bank because you're not really trying to uh, advance that bank's products. You're looking at the entire ecosystem and saying, what out there is the best thing for my client? So really, the rise of the fiduciary model is pretty much linked to the death of the brokerage model in in many ways. And um, and, and by brokerage, I mean, uh, you know, commissions, trying to generate commissions instead of, you know, charging a, a fee on the overall assets and making sure the fee structure is completely aligned with the client's best interest. Uh, so it, I think that the fiduciary trend is something I love to see because it is absolutely better for people. Uh, you have somebody sitting on the other side of the desk. It's like, look, I, I really uh, want to do the best thing for you. This is what I'm here. This is what I'm here to do. And not only uh, it, am I here to do that, I'm, I'm incentivized to do it and legally obligated to do so. So it, it's something that I think it's a trend that is that was catalyzed in 2008 and will definitely uh, uh, continue. And and uh, eventually, I, I I believe that there will be a total death of the of the other uh, substandard brokerage model. Which tees up my next question. Five years from now, over under on 75% of advisors uh, operating as a fiduciary. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm not sure if it can. Maybe if there is another sort of crisis that can move, maybe another cat. Uh, uh, what's the figure at now? Do you know? Oh, I have no idea. Okay. I'm just thinking in my mind, like, oh, what would it look like if uh, anybody putting themselves out there as a financial advisor, uh, three out of four of them putting themselves out there as a fiduciary? But but there but there's still so many incumbents that are uh, the other type of model. Yeah, of course. And there's also there's nuance, which makes the question not a good question, like um, <laughs> insurance and different things like that. That it doesn't really navigate in that path. Um, but, but it would be it'd be more. And if there was another crisis, it'd be even more. Is, is yeah, like answer. what you're saying is it spawned from distrust for sure. Um, but it's also interesting that uh, I, I think I know the answer to this question is: Are there conflicts in the world of fiduciaries? Well, I think that uh, our job is to, uh, and it, the the wording on this is very very specific. If you look at the the ethics manual, our job is to mitigate at all possible conflict. Uh, there is no business where conflicts don't exist. Obviously, if you charge a fee on your services, there's a conflict. Uh, the, the The incentive is to charge a higher fee, which is which is not the best thing for the client. You're trying to charge a fee that's fair. So you, so your job as a fiduciary is to put together a business and processes in place that mitigate interest as much as possible. And I think the best way to do that is to make it part of your culture. I mean, if you're really thinking about every business decision that's made and the question in the back of your mind is, is this in the best interest of the client? I think that you'll, it'll lead to uh, a firm that has that that culture deeply embedded in its roots, and you will that, that's the service uh, that you'll be able to provide for your clients. And not much different from what we just talked about. We we talked about this idea that hey, there's this universe of all these investments you could do, and we might pick you know four or five metrics to kind of narrow down that universe, and then we start interviewing, right? And same thing for a client. Right? You might narrow the universe down by fiduciary or certified financial planner or some of these things that you think are your top four or five, but then you have to meet the person. You have to make sure there's alignment, character, and all those things that you're going to do from a conversation, uh, which kind of goes back to that idea of that quantitative and qualitative uh, balance that we talked about uh, 
from the fee discussion. Um, so in interest of time, I have a couple other topics that I think I'm interested in kind of going over. So ESG. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, I just did that. Well, you mentioned it before that it would be an interesting topic to discuss, and we won't go in length, but I'm going to pose some questions to you. So I I know what ESG is, environmental, social, and governance, um, but if you ask me – let me, how can I say this? Mm. I've read about it a lot. I, I, I know the vocabulary. I have the understanding. But if you really put me against the wall and said, hey, what does it actually mean? I'm going to tell you, I don't know if I really know that because I think it's in the eye of the beholder because I feel like every organization I look at has a little bit of a different bent or feel for what they mean by it. What's So the formal definition, you, 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 or right, like you said, it's an acronym, Environmental, Social, and Governance. Uh, but in our industry, it's, it's become a catch-all term for how to connect somebody's values to their investments and their, you know, and their dollars, essentially. Yes. And it's, uh, I feel like that there's been so many presentations at uh, large financial firms to say, this is what the world looks like five years from now, is that people want their investments to represent um, their social opinions. Mm. Um, and a lot of time we hear those things and we say, the trend's moving this way, this is what's happening. Um, and we don't see it in our day to day. The problem that I have with it, um, it's gaining a li- it's gaining a little bit of steam. Especially it's gaining a lot of traction, right? Yeah, yes. But what I'm saying is, I still don't understand. It 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 doesn't <laughs> mean the same thing to everybody, right? So let's let's go backwards and, okay. and try to see if I can simplify this. Is that when I first heard ESG, I thought like, oh, okay, let me look under the hood of an ESG portfolio. Let me look at what the underlying stocks. I was surprised. I didn't think that those companies off the top of my head or my thoughts or what I've heard in media or knowing who the CEOs are were represented what I thought I was going to see. So it was a surprise to me. Then I look at another fund that has totally different companies and one fund that was filtering out this company, it was in this other ESG fund, which to me was like, wow, this is going to be really difficult. It's like politics. When somebody says, uh, you know, I'm Republican or Democrat, then they have to do a further descriptor, like, where do you fall on the spectrum? Um, which to me has made ESG so difficult to understand, but it feels like the industry is is forcing institutions that um, if you're not offering this, uh, you're going to lose clientele. Right. You're not a good person. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea behind, right, as Trevor stated, and just very simply, it's, it's I'm an investor and I want to invest in companies that are doing good in the world. And it stems from, I, I think, uh, the right intentions. But in reality, uh, in practice, it's very, very difficult to, number one, define what's good for each investor. And then number two, actually do the screening and make sure the company fits that definition of good. Like, for example, Apple, uh, Apple touches. So we're talking about the fruit apple. Oh, we would fruit. never, oh, we, right. yeah, we would never talk about a company, oh, the company here the on company. this podcast. But yeah, whatever uh, random company right, you're talking right. about. One of the largest uh, consumer product companies in, in the world uh, produces a phone that touches, I, I think, over a thousand different facilities and over 50 different countries all over the world. So how do you how do you then do your analysis and make sure that Apple is doing good and its counterparties are doing great? Uh, oh, oh. 
Excuse me, excuse me. I'm, 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 I'm new to podcasting. I should, but go I should, on. Be, I should be punished. Yeah. Uh, but but as far uh, but but it's the analysis. Not only is defining good for the investor very difficult because it's different for everybody. Everybody has a different value system. But then doing the analysis and filtering out which companies uh, fit that definition is extremely difficult in practice. I think what's hard too is this idea of. I don't know if it's the right way to articulate it, like correlation and causation. Like if the trend of ESG gets more popular and the more dollars chasing those things help the stock, does that mean that the company has done better because of their practices or there's just this new filtering trend that is kind of giving a tailwind to these companies? Does that make sense what I mean by that? Sure. You're, you're essentially saying that companies that are the fifth description of good uh, should perform better because they have better practices and, and- – well, no, I'm saying that mm. the the thought is – I think the argument that will be made in the future is that, hey, let me show you my ESG portfolio. And the reason it's doing so good is because these companies do good, right? But if this index or whatever you want to call it is um, normalized and adopted by a lot of people, what does that mean? It means they're going to attract more investing dollars, which that is going to be a tailwind for their stock price. So it, it might have an impact on uh, stock if there was no correlation to what your metrics of goodness was uh, related to how they're performing. Sure. If everything's lumped into the same ESG bucket, uh, then yeah, right. You're going to get flows into that index and that flows will buoy the stock price and uh, it's it, you can't really be sure of the causation behind uh, uh, increased performance. Although it, it, the data right now does not show an outperformance of ESG uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, if anything, uh, the last data I looked at, it's it's the opposite. It, uh, there's nothing conclusive. Let's say it that way. Yeah, I think the the place that I'll go with kind of to wrap up this little topic is um, it's just a, a a big behemoth to kind of uh, talk about. But it's, it's like if somebody – if you have a favorite soft drink or something like that um, and you're like, oh, I love the flavor. I drink a lot. I don't think it's that bad for me. And then somebody comes to you with the science. They're like, let me give you the ingredients of all the things that are in here. Did you know you were drinking XYZ, ABC? I feel like that's what ESG is doing. I've had people come to me as prospective clients. They're like, I'm an ESG investor. And I say, okay, let's kind of peel back the curtain and let's look at what the underlying holdings – did you know these were the top 10 companies in this fund that you owned? And they were like surprised. And I'm like, well, that's a bummer. Like they were more attracted to the the marketing wrapper than they were to kind of what the the, the actual investment is. That's a, that's a fantastic point. Uh, really understanding what the marketing wrapper is and, and separating that from the underlying investments. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's something that our industry definitely doesn't have right. Uh, this ESG trend does have legs, but I and I'm all for uh, clients and prospects wanting to uh, tell us, you know, what their values are and and where they may not want to be invested. I think I'm all, we're all for the highest degree of customization possible, but for to, to invest in a fund that says we invest in companies that are doing good is uh, is is something that I I think is 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 very misleading. Uh, and uh, I think it's uh, I, fr- I frankly think it's it's all marketing driven and and, uh, and uh, it's really there just to attract assets and 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 uh, capitalize on, on trends on social trends. Yeah, it, it feels like um, just figuring out, hey, what does the customer want? And then let's build something like that. Right. So. E- yeah. Even if it doesn't really get at their intent at all, it'll just attract dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so much more to talk about, and we will transition off that. I will pose my kind of last question. I wrote down on here um, what what's the most interesting thing in finance right now. Um, I'm going to use my subject first, and then if you want to add to that, but this is an old acronym. Like it's not something new that's just coming out right now. But to me, this is the most fascinating thing right now. And it's mm-hmm. this idea of Tina. Like there is no alternative. That's what Tina stands for. Um, I'm super curious to see what investors are going to continue to do when interest rates feel like they are staying put. Um, when you look, okay, post-financial crisis, 2008, to today, kind of what was the highest level the ten-year Treasury was? What's the lowest level? And kind of see those those guardrails that have been uh, built around uh, that low interest rate. And how do investors respond to that? Mm. The reason I'm interested in that is because I think the natural reaction is to just load up on more risk assets. Um, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Uh, and that's the thing that. Uh, that captivates my attention right now. What, any thoughts on that? I Yes, I, I have a lot of thoughts of that. And it is a, a very different uh, investing type of landscape than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago or 20 years ago or ever, really, uh, when you had all the suppression really by central banks. And like you said, interest rates staying very low. It's difficult for multi-asset class investors. It's difficult for retirees that are looking for income that, uh, you know, Back in the day, they could invest in a money market and it was giving them four or five percent. <laughs> What's a market money market giving them now? <laughs> it's giving them zero. So, uh, which 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 incentivizes them or forces them further out in the risk curve, and it creates a vulnerability. They they have to understand they're taking more risk to get really some a similar return similar that, they did, yeah. that they did in the past with less risk. So, I think as long as those vulnerabilities are understood and there's a plan uh, to maybe offset that somehow, then I, I, I think that the, the, the perniciousness of this Tina world uh, can, be, can be reduced. But, but other than that, I do think it's, uh, it raises the amount of systemic risk in the system and uh, it, it, it opens people to, uh, to greater financial risk, absolutely. I wrote an article some time ago, and I, I used this analogy that advisors were safari guides. Um, that you know, if you're going to go to South Africa and you wanted to see uh, lions and elephants in in the wild, um, even though that sounds risky, um, you could do it in a safe environment, right? If you have a safari guide, uh, but man, God forbid that uh, I would I would never want anybody to go out there and try to kind of. Uh, do that treacherous ground on their own and uh, hope for the best. So the reason I'm saying that is I think that this Tina idea, there is no alternative, meaning, you know, uh, you have to take on more risk because of interest rates and things of that nature. Um, I, I think it advocates further for the need for an advisor, which I gave a long winded analogy there, but the, I see the advisor that's a really as great point. the safari guide, because what I think this uh, landscape is doing, it, it's, it's telling you, hey, debt is cheap and risk is the only place that you can go. And there's some truth to that. But man, those things uh, taken uh, without moderation can be uh, destructive. 
So I think the advisor role somewhat is to, to balance, hey, what is the prudent amount of leverage at low interest rates that you should be using on your balance sheet? And what is the prudent uh, level of risk management and risk exposure that you should have? And I think that has to be so fine-tuned right now. And I think even when you fine-tune it, um, when markets misbehave, it's going to create such a level of uncomfortability that the advisor is going to serve the role of uh, – like the psychologist of just like, hey, like calm down, stay like we're good. Like we've got a plan, and and like you know what I mean. This isn't the first time a lion has been within two feet of the jeep. Like we we have a a, a thing that we do, a, an operation, a process, or whatever. And that there's such a strong trust between the safari guide and the uh, participant that. I, I I just don't see uh, going out alone. I think an advisor is greater need. And obviously I'm an advisor, so maybe that's a biased standpoint, but I think the landscape is just so difficult right now. Yeah, absolutely. And like you, Trevor said, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're always going to be in favor of advisors and the role they play in the world. But I think it's a great argument. It's one that I have to believe in why it's even more important now than in the past. It's because there's more opportunities for ruin. There's more opportunities to get hurt. Uh, and if there's more opportunities, and if there's larger amounts of risks out risk out there, uh, good good advice go uh, it, it goes up in value. Um, so I, I I completely agree with everything that Trevor said. I think that it, it, investors do have to be careful, and they do have to understand the risk in their portfolio. And it's easy to get complacent. Uh, and uh, one of the things you have to avoid uh, the most is how complacency can translate into a portfolio that maybe you don't understand, or you're always going to think is going to go in one direction. And then when something totally unexpected happens, you lose uh, any sort of faith in anything and you start, uh, you know, making decisions that are purely emotional. Yeah. And that is where I think the benefit of the Safari Guide Advisor is, is that they've gone down this path so many times. It's actually hard to surprise an advisor. Oh, I've been through a situation like that. Oh, I've seen that happen. Oh, this is your executive compensation. I got it. We we understand that. Or oh, this is what the loan officer is telling you. You need X, Y, and Z. Um, that expertise of just going through that process so many times is where there's, uh, I think, just a ton of value. But uh, we've used up all our time, so <laughs> we'll wrap up the podcast here. We'll ask that you rate the podcast, uh, leave comments. Um, I hope you enjoyed this off the cuff where we cover the subjects of investment fees, ESG investing, uh, fiduciary, and Tina. There is no alternative. We'll do more of these, um, and uh, of course, we will be back next week with more of our thoughts on money. Thoughts on money. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.